1: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then.
1: I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. Before we get to our topic, because this is the first episode, I thought we'd start with telling our listeners how we met and why we decided to team up to do this podcast. And I'm going to turn to Heather because she has hinted to me that she remembers how we met and that I don't.
0: And I'm I'm convinced that's true, and you're going to laugh when you hear this. Okay. Joanne had just written a really big book, Affairs of Honor, her first book, which she probably doesn't recognize, was like everybody was talking about it at a conference, and somebody pointed her out at an elevator bank in a hotel in Los Angeles— <laughs> It was very late at night, and I went over and met her and shook her hand because I wanted to meet her, and she looked exhausted, and she has absolutely no memory of it. Do you? <laughs> no, I have absolutely
1: no memory. Of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but we quickly became, um, certainly on each other's radar screens, because there were so few women doing political history as we came up through the ranks of the profession, and then um, in the last, really since the, the pandemic, we got to know each other quite well because we did so many Zoom events together and discovered that we really thought about the world very similarly and that we liked working together.
1: And even before that point, we were sending messages back and forth and talking to each other because we, at some early point, sort of realized that we really had opinions. We wanted to bounce off each other. And whenever we did that, there were so many similarities and there were so many ways in which you and I have talked about this another time in which um, I thought something and then I said something about it to you and you responded and I thought, yeah. that's what I meant. So um, really early on, it was clear that in our talking to each other, we each sort of clarified for the other one some of what we were thinking.
0: And one of the things we're really thinking in this era is we're very concerned about the survival of American democracy. And, And one of the things that is really why we're doing this podcast is to help people understand why democracy is so important and how we got to this particular moment in our history.
1: And how democracy has worked in the past, and how democracy hasn't worked in the past, and how understanding those things can help us take advantage of the current moment for a positive outcome. And make it all better. Yes. Okay, so Heather, I'm going to let you introduce our topic today because you're the one who kind of sniffed it out first. So one of the things that really interested me about
0: the Biden administration was from the beginning, he talked a lot about foreign affairs. And of course, we know that Biden has long had an interest in foreign affairs. He was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for 34 years. Soon after President Biden is inaugurated, he gives a speech on February 4th in which he talks about how in his administration, there's no longer going to be a bright line between domestic and foreign policy.
1: There's no longer a bright line between foreign and domestic policy. Every action we take and our conduct abroad, we must take with American working families in mind.
0: So, you know, Joanne and I toss ideas around and I was saying that this seemed really different to me. It sounded to me like a throwback to the Teddy Roosevelt
1: administration. And then Joanne said, (laughs) (laughs) what I always say, this reminds me of something in the founding era. But although actually what it really did remind me of was the simple fact that in the founding era, foreign affairs and domestic affairs were bound together. They were not separated. And that the idea of what Heather was interested in, that how interesting there's no longer a bright line, I thought, well, there wasn't a very bright line at the founding either. And I thought, you know, people tend to think generally about foreign affairs as a separate, almost sometimes abstract, but a separate realm that sort of operates on its own. And certainly what I found when I looked all the way back was quite the opposite. And as a matter of fact, that was a huge, huge concern of people in the first, I don't know, 10, 15 years of the American government was Foreign influence, foreign affairs. They assumed that they're like this brand new government. They're, you know, 10 years old maybe when the—and not even when the French Revolution breaks out. And they assumed that some foreign nation, some big power, could sweep in and take over or warp or whatever. You know, we're talking England and France, and we're like this little— pipsqueak nation that for most of the 1790s was just ping-ponging back and forth between those two countries. So foreign influence was a huge concern at the time, and everyone assumed that what was happening in these foreign countries could easily, sometimes deliberately, but not even accidentally, could contaminate the United States. So either a foreign state could take over or what was going on in foreign states could sweep in or sneak in. And the best example of that in the 1790s is the French Revolution. The French Revolution all over the world was a huge issue. Americans sort of broke down into two camps about it. One camp, so the Jeffersonian Republicans, had this sort of idealistic, the spark of freedom is spreading around the world and we are the ones who spread it. But a lot of other people, and these are the Federalists, so the other big party at the time, the Federalists were horrified that some of the furor and chaos and, you know, guillotines and tossing off royalty, that some of that was going to contaminate the United States. And frantic fear, like, it's it's hard to exaggerate that fear. And as a matter of fact, I don't have to because I can offer you, I can give you, Heather, one of my favorite goofy artifacts— From this time period, that happens to be related to what we're talking about today. And you just have to know that in future episodes, I'm sure that we will both be coming up with one of our favorite (laughs) historical artifacts. But this directly, directly relates to people being terrified of the foreign influence and how foreign influence could have a huge impact on domestic affairs. And it's, it's from Hamilton. I realize this is not surprising coming from me, but uh, it's from Hamilton. It's a memo that for unknown reasons, he sat down and thought, I want to create a seal for the United States of America. He has no graphic sense you'll hear in a moment, but he sits down and he draws a globe And on the right side of the globe is the European continent, and on the left side is North America. And there's a colossus, as he puts it, a giant with one foot on Europe, wearing all of these trappings of the French Revolution, you know, a liberty cap and and sort of drowned in French revolutionary this and that. Her other foot of this figure, the colossus, is hovering over the United States, in which there's like a figure with a shield sort of holding it up to fend off the horror of the French Revolution. So Hamilton creates this seal of the United States that represents the United States. And what he comes out with is, run! <laughs> it's the French Revolution. This is scary. We have to fend it off. It, it To me, it's like a Freudian look at the assumption that whatever's happening overseas is beyond important in the United States. Well, so now
0: I got to ask the first and obvious question. Did he literally draw this and was it any good?
1: You know, I don't think he literally drew it because I, I believe, if I remember correctly, the memo is like, imagine this. I did have a colleague once who drew it and it was really not very good. And, and it goes on. It goes on. He says something like, if it's not too busy already, maybe we could have like Neptune in the middle of the sea in waves." You know,
0: it's not
1: good. It's really not good.
0: But, but this is not an unrealistic fear at all for the early republic, is it? I mean, that's one thing that I always feel like people forget. You know, we think that America came out of nowhere and then sort of existed, and it really didn't for a long time. It was entirely reasonable to think that France or England or somebody else would come and, and take over the entire continent, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. In the first real election in 1796, they were already afraid that France was just going to take over the election and take over the United States. Washington's famous farewell address, when he stepped down from his second term in 1796, People know he gave an address, and I suppose now, because of the Hamilton musical, they know some of the words from the farewell address.
0: I want to talk about neutrality, sir, with Britain and France on the verge of war. Is this the best I want to warn against partisan fighting. But
1: But the real point of it, he was warning Americans about the two things that they should be most afraid of. And one was what he called the insidious wiles of foreign influence— And the other was partisanship. Both of those things, he thought, could totally destroy the republic. And he stepped down telling Americans, whatever you do, watch for foreign influence. Watch what's happening abroad. Try to stay detached from it, although you kind of can't. And watch how political parties are functioning and don't let them bind themselves up with foreign affairs.
0: Well, so that's it, right? that the the whole idea of partisanship in his era, he's worried is going to be attached to foreign affairs. So they really are two sides of the same coin,
1: absolutely. and they're they're bound up with a broader idea, which is why it's so easy, seemingly for another country to sweep in and take the United States, not just because it's small and it's new, but it's a democratic republic in a world of monarchies. And democratic republics, unlike monarchies, are grounded on public opinion. And what that means is because it's a democratic government, it's not that hard in their imagination and in fact, in truth, for a foreign nation to come in and sway the public their way. So the simple fact of democracy, the democratic component of the government, showed them that it was really important to think about foreign influence because it would be easy to sway public opinion. So at the end of the day, it's about democracy. At the end of the day, they might not say that. They didn't like that word. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's about democracy and survival.
0: And trying to define America against other countries. So domestic and foreign
1: policy really can't be separated. Right. I I think they would have loved to separate them, but there was no way to do that. And in his speech, Blinken made this very connection between democracy and foreign affairs. Shoring up our democracy is a foreign policy imperative. Otherwise... We play right into the hands of adversaries and competitors, like Russia and China, who seize every opportunity to sow doubts about the strength of our democracy.
0: Well, it's just just funny nowadays when you think about it, because we certainly grew up in a world in which domestic and foreign policy seemed very different. But, Mm -hmm. you know, from when, when you were talking about that... What really jumped out to me was the fact that that kind of look at the interlacing of foreign affairs and domestic affairs is really exactly what Theodore Roosevelt was doing at the turn of the century, at the turn of the next century, when um, he quite deliberately uses foreign policy and foreign affairs to try and rework American democracy internally. And he does it really deliberately because he's got this huge problem in the late 19th century when the American economy and American politics has really been taken over by big business and industrialists. And he would like to reclaim uh, American democracy for more Americans than are currently being served by the system in in the 1890s. But he can't really get a lot of traction. Because, of course, the old guard, as they were known, really controlled everything in Congress. And so one of the things that he and his people do is they say, well, you know, great. If America is as great as you say it is, we absolutely should export it to places like Cuba and try and, and take care of the humanitarian crisis in the in what was happening in Cuba in the late 1890s. But if it's all so ducky over there, what we really <laughs> ought to do is bring it home as well. That if we're going to go ahead and spread American values overseas, we can use use that ideology to remake America at home and that they really were both
1: sides of the same coin was he promoting that idea or was that something he was kind of privately motoring to do he was privately doing it but he was also
0: Actively promoting it. So, you know, he's a funny character because he cares. Obviously, he's a wealthy man himself, but he cares a lot about rebuilding American democracy, not least because both his wife and his mother die on the same day in 1884 and Valentine's Day from diseases that they picked up from the lower classes, if you will, around (laughs) their home. But he actually, when it comes time to to go into Cuba, the people like Teddy Roosevelt and like the small-town Americans really want to go fight in Cuba to try and save the Cuban women and children is what they say they're concerned about because the bankers and the brokers in America don't want to do that. And so while they're making a foray into foreign affairs, they're in many ways doing it to try and reclaim American democracy at home. And there's this incredibly powerful moment at a dinner at the Gridiron Club in Washington, D.C., when Mark Hanna, who is one of the operatives for the old guard in the Republican Party, is down at one end of a table, and someone says, you know, Mark, are we going to go to war with Cuba? And Mark's like, no, 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 we're not going to go to war with Cuba. The business interests don't want to go to war with Cuba. It's not going to happen. And Teddy Roosevelt is on the other end of the table, and he stands up, and he shakes his fist— at Mark Hanna. and he says we will have this war for the freedom of Cuba in
1: spite of the timidity of the commercial wow. interests. But so here's here's the question about that though. So for the freedom of Cuba, how much of it falls on that side of the balance because it's it feels like or certainly my impression is there were a lot of Americans who just wanted this war not only to deliberately sort of force through reform but but we're sort of eager to to get into war, to use it for that purpose. Is that the case with this? I mean, were there like really hawkish people who are eager for war just because being in a war would be handy?
0: Well, being in a war would not be handy necessarily for Cuba, the Philippines, which are part of that war, are a very different story, but that that it would help to rebuild American democracy. It would make men men again. It would make Americans care again about something other than money and start to care about morality and humanity. Roosevelt also said um, at one point, there's a quote from him I love where he says, "The spirit of the banker, the broker." The mere manufacturer and the mere merchant is unpleasantly prominent. In political matters, we are often very dull mentally and especially morally." And the people who volunteer for that war are overwhelmingly from small towns. And of course, as you know, Teddy Roosevelt very deliberately makes that war sort of the cowboy war where we're going to restore American values with our rough riders going up San Juan Hill without the horses, by the way, because they all drown when they get off the transports. Don't tell newbie that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and, and for those out there in the podcast world, newbie is my rescue parakeet. And he might be piping up now and again. Who knows? But thank you for including him, Heather. That's very nice of you. (laughs) But now here's the thing. So when I think of this war, and I guess that's why I'm asking you all these questions, what pops into my head is something that may not have ever happened. But William Randolph Hearst, who's the editor of the New York Journal, and there's a photographer in Cuba who writes to Hearst and says there's not going to be a war and the sort of legendary thing that her says is, you furnish photos and I'll furnish a war, which I think that scene is in Citizen Kane, maybe. I feel like I've seen it somewhere, but it's it's sort of mythic. And I actually went poking around online because it popped into my head in the course of the many conversations we have. And people online couldn't agree. The historians online were arguing with each other. But regardless, the that, historians were arguing with each other. I know it's shocking. It is shocking. <laughs> It's because we're so friendly towards each other. Um, but I, I did find myself wondering about that, because that idea, you know, he's, he wants that war, in part to sell papers, that what you're talking about, the sort of link between domestic and foreign, is actually multi-layered it is very much multi-layered and of course what
0: i'm not talking about here is what happens in the philippines which is again put together in the textbooks although it's a war in the pacific and it's a very different kind of war sort of the underside of what i'm talking about where america goes and imposes its will on the philippines and later acquires the philippines and american samoa and um Puerto Rico as territories, which is a a huge change in our policy up until that point and includes the people who live in them as non-citizen nationals, which is an entire change in the way that we admit people into the American Union. But it is interesting that the relationship between domestic and foreign affairs for the Spanish-American War launches Teddy Roosevelt on this quest to rebuild American democracy in this image of the small Western cowboy, the individualist Western cowboy. And he wins the New York governorship immediately after it in 1898. He says that he will do so to rein in big business and to restore democracy, and he tries to do that. He cracks down on corporations. He tries to get rid of the sweatshops in New York, and he forces corporations, especially the ones who operate in a public capacity to start paying taxes, which drives the big businessmen who've been running the New York legislature absolutely crazy. And then, of course, he takes that into the White House as well. You know, one of the first things he does after the assassination of McKinley when he becomes the president is he goes ahead and he starts trust busting. He deliberately takes on the largest trust in the country at the time and says he's going to break it up because he needs to restore American democracy. And as you know, from then on, he gets more and more radical. So by 1904, in his in his message to Congress, he's really advancing quite dramatic legislation to try and go ahead and restore American democracy. Because the central question in his era is, is it really true that all men are created equal? You know, you've got the guy who works on the shop floor, and then you've got Andrew Carnegie. Are they really equal?
1: The takeaway here, in a sense, is related to the takeaway from my example of the 1790s, which is how bound together foreign affairs and domestic affairs are to the point that for some of these actors, they need each other or they're so terrified that they they feel the need to fend them off, that they're assuming they're going to be so bound together. Now, we have another thing that we want to talk about, which does something quite different. And we are going to talk about that thing in just a moment. So it's interesting, though, Heather, because it sounds like, you know, what you're describing here is this eagerness, right, on the part of Roosevelt to to grab at and use and link foreign affairs and domestic affairs for the purpose of shaping America. I just described Americans being terrified of the influence of foreign affairs. So although we're talking about a similar link, in my period, the United States is so weak and so new. That, in a sense, they had to be terrified; they had a right to be terrified. There was who knew what a foreign nation would do by the time we get to the period you 're talking about it 's a very different America with a v- obviously enormously different amount of power and a very different place in the world and a
0: very different way of interacting with the world, so that Teddy Roosevelt feels he 's comfortable enough to reach out. And use foreign affairs to try and influence things domestically. And it works, of course, by turning uh, the younger members of the Republican Party in favor of imperialism. He manages to grab power from the old guard and to change the direction of America. But one of the things that really made me want to do this particular episode to start with is something you said when we started talking about it, when you said, oh, but that's the way things used to be. And it made me think, well, well, but they haven't been in my lifetime, So what changed and when did it change that turned foreign affairs into something that seemed to be separate from domestic affairs? And that to me is really, the history is interesting, but that change and the world in which we grew up in, it seems to me to be incredibly important right now because I think Biden is trying to override that.
1: Well, I want to hear more of that from you because my sense of this is that it has to do with bureaucracy, a 20th century thing, which is is, you know, the sort of growth of bureaucracy and its influence. So you tell me what the logistics of that were, what the dynamics of that were so that things change. I know you and I in chatting about whatever we chat about, whenever we get to a period during which we were alive, we always have these of wacky cultural references. And in my, you know, sometimes I feel like mine are kind of half-baked. You know, something I saw on a TV screen, things from, you know, the mid-20th century on. A, a jingle, Joanne? Oh, no. <laughs> You're outing me. You're outing me. <laughs> I told you I'd use it against you. <laughs> you did. You did. I have I have this scary um, jingle and theme song brain that remembers, like, every commercial jingle and TV show theme song from the 1970s. To a frightening degree, and I don't know why it's there, and I don't know why it won't leave. And it would be good if it freed up some space for some more history because I would really like that. But not necessarily a jingle, but just some of the things that were appearing on TV. But you start out by telling me about the structure and the dynamic. Well, so we got
0: thinking about this, like where was the
1: change? And my first thought was that
0: it was after World War I when there's a a big move among people like Henry Cabot Lodge to go ahead and uh, convince Americans not to go ahead and join the League of Nations because that would create a one world government. If you've heard that expression, that's where it's from. But I actually don't think that's right. The more we dug around in this, the more it came clear that after World War II, we get the sense that foreign affairs should be conducted by experts. And one of the things that really marks that is in 1947, we get the National Security Act. And the National Security Act creates the Department of Defense. It brings together all the different branches of the military into this new Department of Defense. And it also s- puts in place the national security council and the national security council operates out of the white house and it includes the president of course and members of the cabinet and other people other experts who are there to give advice to the executive branch about the ways in which they should advance foreign and military policy and it also establishes the central intelligence agency which you know collects information in uh, both open ways and in secret ways and one of the things that this does I think is really important because it centralizes the, the power over all of our defense activities in the White House. So rather than the old system, which made for a much larger public discussion with the Declaration of War belonging to Congress, this really centers events in the executive branch and especially in the White House. And it lets the administration do warlike things without ever declaring war. So one of the things that it does is it's a major reworking of the way in which foreign affairs are conducted, but it also pushes the idea of foreign affairs into the realm of experts, if you will, and out of general discussion.
1: Right. No, exactly. Into the realm of experts who are oh so popular today and further away in the sort of reality factor or the detail factor from the American public. Right. So this is becoming something more internal and less external.
0: Yes. And then that means, I think, that it's associated more with various presidents and whether or not you're for or against various presidents. And I was interested. I went back and reread Nixon's silent majority speech of November 3rd, which we all know because that's the one where he talks about, all right, you're laughing at I am laughing. All we f- all know. <laughs> Everybody knows the silent majority speech. <laughs> I'll
1: go with you. But, I'll roll with but, you,
0: <laughs> But that's a speech where he he assures people who are listening that the silent majority of Americans, which he implies are the majority of Americans, the silent majority, are on his side in Vietnam policy. But what's really interesting in this context about that speech is he actually begins it as a way to explain to Americans what's happening in foreign policy, because he says, I know you don't know what's really going on. Hmm. And then he sits there and he says, well, I'm outlining what's happened in secret that you don't know about. And then he sets up what he thinks are the important points about it. So he says, basically, we've tried all this stuff and none of it's worked except um, at one point he says, you know, we haven't agreed on anything except we've agreed on the shape of the bargaining table, you know, sort of denigrating the whole thing. He goes on to sort of reassure Americans that they basically should just trust him. He says, we have to keep doing what we're doing. We have mm. to keep doing what I am telling you to do because if we let down our allies, nobody will ever trust us again. And then he turns and he says, And so tonight, to you, The great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. For the more divided we are at home, the less likely the enemy is to negotiate at Paris. And Vietnam suddenly becomes not about America's role in the world or whether it's important to Americans to protect democracy at home by advancing it overseas, which had been part of the argument at least before that. Now it's become you're either with President Nixon or you're against President Nixon.
1: So it's the deadly combination of foreign affairs and partisanship that George Washington is howling about in his farewell address— as something that's risky and can tear a country apart.
0: Isn't that interesting? And, you know, <laughs> I actually had not thought about it that way until you put it this way. <laughs> that's shocking. <laughs> but, then, but then, like you said earlier, then it becomes pervasive. Right. Like Then every, everybody thinks they're not talking about—they're really not talking about foreign policy. They're talking about being pro-America or anti-America foreign affairs becomes a partisan cudgel to beat the other side with. And it loses all nuance.
1: So Nixon is really talking about domestic affairs and the nation when he's talking about whatever's going on in Vietnam. He's linking it back to what's going on here and to the silent majority here. So he's talking about that connection despite the rise of experts. And There are other people in this time period, a lot of other people in this time period who recognize that domestic affairs, regardless of foreign policy, are going to be shaped by whatever's going on there, and they understand that connection and are talking about it. And Martin Luther King, actually, in 1967, gave a really interesting speech. It was about Vietnam. I think he called it Beyond Vietnam. And the main argument of that lecture that he gave, that speech, is— that we shouldn't be putting all of this money into Vietnam because that money could be used for social reform, could be used for poverty, could be used for civil rights. There are all kinds of things that in the United States should be focused on instead of whatever the heck is going on there. I have to read this line that he comes up with in that speech because it's so powerful. He says...
0: If America's soul becomes totally plausible, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam...
1: If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. And that
0: seems to me to speak directly to that idea of Nixon and other post-war presidents using foreign affairs to consolidate power around themselves, exactly. especially to ha- make their own domestic policies go through because of foreign policy. And something really jumps out in along those lines with this idea of experts and the power in the executive branch and the increasingly powerful president. When John Kerry comes back from Vietnam, wounded in 1971, he's like 26 years old and he makes a stand against Vietnam and he testifies before Congress And he he calls out the leaders by name. You know, he says, We are here to ask, and we're here to ask vehemently, where are the leaders of our country? Where is the leadership? We're here to ask, where are McNamara, Garstow, Bundy, Gilpatrick, and so many others? Where are they now that we, the men whom they sent off to war, have returned? These are commanders who have deserted their troops. And there is no more serious crime in the law of war. And the idea that, that we have this, these experts out there making decisions in foreign policy and then turning around and saying to Americans at home, you have to do what we want domestically because otherwise you're letting America down overseas really becomes one of the driving forces of American politics after World War II.
1: Once you get to for America or against America— you're moving into hyper-partisan zone. That kind of conversation can't be a conversation, really. It, it's pushing partisanship to an extreme if you're accusing the other side of being against America in some way. So the, not only does this become partisan, but it in some sense really charges the spirit of politics and I guess of the nation more broadly.
0: Well, it just becomes, if you think about the, the 1960s and the 1970s, Vietnam... And being pro-Nixon or anti-Nixon was absolutely everywhere. It was in clothing. It was in politics, of course. It was in
1: <clears throat> jingles. It was in, <laughs> and it was, of course, in music. Yeah. No, for sure. But here's what's interesting is some of what you're talking about as far as culture, so uh, clothing and, and songs, some of that is really, really directly addressing Vietnam and then some of it is a little bit less direct, but no less pointed. So, for example, some of the clothing that, you know, this is, the hip, we're moving into the hippie generation, some of the clothing that they're choosing is to basically, it, it's protest clothing. It's, art, it's a sort of clothing as protest art, that they're wearing tie-dye or these things that are not common, bright colors, just to suggest they're not going along with what is the, the sort of main thrust of government and the folks in power, right? That's, that's some of what is being shaped in culture by the Vietnam War, although it isn't explicitly. It's not like there's a slogan about Vietnam on the front of their tie-dye shirts.
0: No, and that's one of the, my favorite statistics in American history is the fact that in 1975, 75 million pairs of Levi's sold. And I love that statistic, because if you think about when James Dean was wearing blue jeans, it was a signal of being, um, you know, sort of an outcast. And by 75, they have become such a popular symbol of being the sort of Western anti-government Supporter that you're, you know, you're a Westerner, you're fighting back against the government. And of course, many Southerners pick that up. Southern white people pick that up with the idea that they're fighting back against desegregation. But a lot of Northerners and anti-war people pick up blue jeans as well because it's a sign that they are standing against the government that's gone into Vietnam. And this is, you know, you see them everywhere nowadays. Everybody just wears blue jeans. But that was a really big transition that then became a symbol. You know, your dad didn't wear blue jeans. Now we just have mom's blue
1: jeans (laughs) I thought the or same dad's thing. blue jeans, right? Yeah. <laughs> we have generational jeans now. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk for a minute about music from that era, because music is one of those things that can very aggressively be either direct or really indirectly related, but slam you in the face with the point that it's making about the government and the war. Now, are there songs from that period that stand out to you? I know there's one for me, but are there ones that stand out for you? On both sides, the first for me that stands out is Country Joe and
0: the Fish at Woodstock <laughs> singing uh, the Fixing to Die rag. Do you know that
1: I, song? I you, do know that song. Okay, all right. Well, you're looking vague. I <laughs> no, didn't no, 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 I was deciding whether to sing. <laughs> oh, oh, please be my guest. I might get it wrong, but this is what I think it is. And you can't criticize, you can't laugh. Because I can, I can see you, and I, you can't laugh, but I think this is it. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Four. Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven, open up the pearly gates. Well, well there ain't no time to wonder why, whoopee, we're all going
0: to die. <laughs> you got it. You, got, you know what's so funny about that is the idea of you listening to that in, was it California you grew up in? Mostly New York, mostly Westchester, and then
1: then L.A., yeah. And there I was in Maine, you know, <laughs> listening to that. <laughs> right, and because... Music, music brought people together. Is that a song that you've thought of since the 1970s? Because, well, I do know why it's in my brain. Music stays in my brain. But aside from that, you know, until you mentioned it, and, you know, I, I can sort of think about what the lyric is, fixing to die, whoopee, you're all going to die. It's pretty clear. It's kind of amazing to me, just as you said, not only Maine and California, but it sticks around. It not only does oh, yeah. it have an influence then, but it, it sticks around. And you knew all the
0: words. That's true. You know, I was thinking about that. And then the other thing that jumps out is um, Merle Haggard's Fighting Side of Me. It was number one on the country charts for three weeks, and Haggard is—you know—he's known as the poet of the common man. And I'm—I'm going to spare you me
1: singing it. Um, <laughs> Sooner or later, but, Heather, I'm going to get you back. <laughs> you just—you just know, just just be on, on alert. But this, you know, you know, he says in this. If you don't love it, leave it. Let this song that I'm singing be a warning when you're running down our country. You're walking on the back inside
0: me. It's not a pro-war song. It's an anti-Anti-Vietnam song. Hmm. So, again, I think really speaks to that partisanship. You listen to Merle Haggard, you listen to that song, you were taking a political stance
1: just by listening to Merle Haggard. And a lot of others because it was number one on the charts. And that's also an example of what I was saying before, which is, Music being blunt but indirect at the same time, and the, the great example of that for me from this era, so I grew up being a huge fan of the weavers because my parents were huge fans of the weavers, and also became then a Pete Seeger fan as well and Pete Seeger in the Vietnam era writes this song called "Waste Deep in the Big Muddy," that ostensibly takes place in one thousand nine hundred and forty two in Louisiana, people training for war however it's really clear that that's not what it's about. The refrain of it is... We're waist-deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. Waist-deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. So it's very obviously a critique of this war that's going on and on and on with deadly consequences. What's interesting is people at the time recognized, even though seemingly about World War II... They recognized exactly what it was doing, and it was controversial. So Seeger is invited onto the Smother Brothers comedy hour to sing, and he sings that song, and it's censored out because it's too controversial. It's too critical. I think, actually, the Smother Brothers made a fuss, and ultimately the network invited him back, and he sang the song on another program, but it it was a huge, huge issue. And if you think about it, think about... That amount of fuss for a song that isn't even specifically about Vietnam, but it really shows you the sorts of things that we're talking about here, which is how close foreign affairs can be to the United States, even in this moment where, as you've been talking about, the executive branch and experts are churning away on the logistics.
0: Although that almost makes it worse because it becomes not a nuanced discussion, but rather, as you say, a cudgel to beat the other side with. You're either for us or you're against us. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. You either love this country or you leave it. Well, that extreme polarization that ends up being a cudgel for one side or the other, I think is the world in which we grew up. And it really jumps out at me nowadays when you look at different Situations with different countries, there are a number of them that it's very, very difficult to talk about. You know, the Middle East, for example, or during the Trump administration, what was happening with Russia, you know, became uh, really about domestic politics rather than about a nuanced relationship
1: in foreign affairs. So, as you just said, it becomes you're for America or you're against America. And that kind of talk to state the obvious if democracy a democratic government is about a conversation between people and each other and between people and the people they give power to i mean that can be a nasty conversation it can be a it can be an angry conversation but there has to be a conversation if it boils down to you're with america or you're against america it's really hard to have that conversation that kind of polarization in which in this case foreign affairs are being used to to sort of I like the word cultural you keep saying cultural I like it too to sort of bang around american things into a way that will serve one party or another again brings me back to george washington you can explicitly see why that kind of behavior why that phenomenon is a big risk to any kind of democratic government
0: because ultimately it undermines democracy when exactly. you're using foreign affairs to turn to become a partisan tool that says you're either pro-America and pro-whatever your leaders do, or anti-America and anti-whatever your leaders do. And that, as I say, I think that's a moment in which we have grown up, but it's really dangerous for democracy. And I think you can see that in just how polarized America has been since the Cold War, how important communism became and how everything in America became either you are for the American government or you are a communist or, or you are a socialist, which has never been an accurate portrayal of what was really happening domestically in the years since World War II. And it's and it's gotten us into a really the dangerous place we're in now with a super powerful president and a super polarized
1: population. And again, a moment in which democracy is in danger all over the world, for the most part. I mean, we're, we're at this interesting moment where we're in the middle of this hyperpolarization. <laughs> we're thinking about ourselves A lot. Although, as we started out by saying, Biden now is really making foreign policy a big part of his administration. But the fact of the matter is we're in a hyper global moment in which our democratic crisis is not the only democratic crisis. The pandemic is the most obvious thing that shows us how global this moment is. The pandemic doesn't care about nation states and boundaries. You can't wall it off. It's it's a reminder again and again and again and again that the world is bound together. And so it's kind of a a different kind of way of saying you can't put up a wall to block out the world or to block out the nation, that you have to worry about how those things are bound together and how the nation is going to deal with that connection. Which brings us back to where we
0: started this time around, and that's that— I'm fascinated by the way that Secretary of State Blinken and President Joe Biden are using foreign affairs to look at American democracy, to say that, in fact, we need to protect democracy abroad by trying to support human rights and, and democratic movements abroad without imposing them on people. And we see this rhetoric across Biden's remarks. He also talks a lot about how He's going to create a foreign policy for the middle class. You know, a foreign policy that means that we're going to rebuild America and that we're going to make sure that whatever we do enables Americans at home to be competitive across the world. So, for example, with China. And this is an underpinning of his domestic policy that in a, is a really interesting political move in the sense that it sort of undercuts the things that Donald Trump talked about and the the attraction that he had for a lot of workers who felt that they had been outsourced, if you will. But at the same time, it's a real position of strength to say domestically we have to rebuild the country in order to be able to compete internationally. So rebuilding America domestically really is about protecting American democracy at home, but also being able to protect human rights and democracy overseas,
1: Right. And in a sense, what we're seeing now is really in Biden's speeches and in his policy, the ways in which human rights and democracy and economics and the middle class, the good of the middle class, are all bound together in a really interesting way. When he talks about things that are good for the middle class, democracy has to be an inherent part of that. And a great example, a great recent example of How foreign policy and human rights are blending and drawing forth commentary from Biden is the recent forced diversion of a commercial flight that Belarus landed this flight because there was a journalist on there, Roman Protosevich, who was talking about their government, was criticizing their government. The flight was grounded. He was removed and arrested. And Biden offered commentary on that, which really shows the connection we're talking about here. In the White House statement on what happened, he said, for months, the Belarusian people have made their voices heard, demanding democracy, respect for human rights, and the preservation of fundamental freedoms. The United States will continue to stand with the people of Belarus in their struggle. And there you see all of that bound together, all of that domestic and foreign and rights and democracy All in one statement. So at the end of
0: the day, domestic policy and foreign policy
1: in the Biden administration really are one and the same. Right, but in the end, once again, as we've been saying over and over again, it all boils down to democracy. Our conversation continues for members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as we prep for our weekly conversations. Head to cafe.com slash history to join. And for a limited time, get 50% off the annual membership with a special code, history. That's
0: cafe.com slash history. And the discount code is HISTORY.
1: That's it for this episode of Now and Then. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Adam Waller, David Tattashore, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, And Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network.